Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, and it's back in person. After two years running our events virtually, we're off to the stunning waterfront resort of Coronado, California, from June the 6th to the 9th. The event combines Woodmac's Solar Summit and our Energy Storage Summit. It'll feature a day on solar, a day on solar plus storage, and a day just on storage, giving you the chance to explore every aspect of these fast-moving technologies. Joining Woodmac's experts will be leaders from utilities, commercial and industrial developers, and state and federal policymakers. Hear from Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, Kelly Saba, CEO of Strategic Management Group, Adam Detrick from Jinko Solar, plus many, many more. Visit woodmac.com slash events to see full details and register your place. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me on the show today again is Melissa Lott. Melissa Lott is the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hello, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. Good to see you. I'm doing well. Been a good week, but it's a hot week here in Texas. Oh, yeah. How is it? I've been seeing uh, uh, some of the reports of the temperatures. What's it been like for you? I think I might have a not-so-typical experience with the heat waves, meaning that I'm in a constant refresh of the status of the grid mode. Uh, like a lot of my energy colleagues here in the state, we're just watching to see what's happening. We've got some of the power plants back off online that were offline for maintenance, but you know, this heat, and it's only May, uh, it'll be interesting to see what's going on this summer. Uh, Texas summers can be brutal if it's that hot already now. That's uh, ominous about the way things are going to go. And as you say, given what's happened in Texas in terms of the strain on the grid, at times of extreme weather. Good luck. We're rooting for you. Appreciate all the positive energy, no pun intended, that y'all can send this way. And I'll say it's interesting in May to leave Austin. I was in Miami, I think you know, Ed, for the Aspen Ideas Climate uh, Meeting Festival that they had there. And, you know, getting off the plane and kind of the cool breeze off the water. uh, It was a nice relief after some hundred plus days here in Austin. Yeah, how was that festival? You were talking on the last show about... uh, Amy Harder from uh, Breakthrough Energy, she was also going to be there. Did you see her there? What, what kind of discussions did you get into? Absolutely. We talked a lot about her work at Cypher and kind of everything going on at the conference and what we were seeing. It was great to see her in person. You know, after a couple of years of COVID, we a lot of us haven't seen each other in person in a while. So it was great to catch up with her and to see a number of the folks from the Aspen team and then also from our team at the Center on Global Energy Policy because we were hosting a few different events on the geopolitics of the energy transition, on nuclear power, talking to future energy leaders. It was it was a really good event. Really enjoyed it. Uh, so also uh, on the show today, I'm delighted to welcome back Robbie Orvis, who's the Senior Director of Policy Design at Energy Innovation, which is an energy and climate think tank based in San Francisco. Uh, so it's been a while since we saw you last. Robbie, how have you been? I've been good, Ed. Thanks. Uh, glad to be back with both of you today. Starting to enjoy spring out here on the east coast it's been a kind of a crazy uh hot and cold uh spell here i've got a little whiplash but starting to get outside and and it's good times right because your uh think tank they're san francisco based but you personally you're in washington dc right yeah i think like a like um with a lot of other organizations uh we were all in san francisco bay area pre-covid and we're scattered around the world now so i'm i'm out in dc Right, got it. And we're going to be taking advantage of your position in DC then and your focus on energy policy to talk about two particular subjects on the show today that um, relate to big controversies in the world of energy about direction of policy. One is the future of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. You probably will remember how the proposed Build Back Better Act, which included lots of provisions that were hugely important for low carbon energy in the US, that died in Congress late last year after Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia said he wouldn't support it. And the big question now is whether anything can be salvaged from that agenda. Another thing we're going to be talking about is the US government's investigation into alleged dumping of imported solar panels, which has reportedly had a devastating impact on planned solar projects in the US. And we're also going to be taking a look at a new study on the potential role of hydrogen. There's, of course, huge interest in the potential for low-carbon hydrogen as part of a zero emissions energy system. But what role can hydrogen really play? And might other options actually be better for a lot of uses? So that's on the agenda for the show today. We're going to start, as I say, with President Biden's climate agenda. At the end of last year, after that Build Back Better Act died in Congress, things seemed pretty bleak for hopes of passing new legislation to support the growth of low carbon energy in the US. But 
In the past few weeks, senators have been negotiating over possible bipartisan legislation that could include at least some of the additional help for clean energy that was included in that bill that failed to pass last year. And those talks do seem to have been making some progress. So, Robbie, tell us what's been going on. Why is this significant that the senators have been talking? And what is the potential uh, significance of their negotiations for clean energy in the US? Well, so there's a couple of things going on right now. So there are these bipartisan discussions that you mentioned that are being led by Senator Manchin and Senator Murkowski. Uh, and those are organized, it seems, around trying to find some common ground, bipartisan common ground, on some type of clean energy and climate legislation. There hasn't been a lot of detail shared, um, and some of the senators that have been in those meetings are a bit surprising. They're not some of the senators you would expect to see who've been involved and leading on the climate discussions earlier. Um, but it does seem like there's, there's some progress there. Um, you know, anything that's not the reconciliation needs 60 votes. So whether or not there's enough common ground to get something meaningful remains uncertain. But at the same time, uh, we're getting whispers that, you know, discussions on reconciliation and negotiations are continuing to move forward. And so I think a lot of people are holding out hope that both of those tracks might bear some fruit perhaps with a more of a focus on reconciliation for more of the clean energy and climate provisions, but that some of that might make its way into some kind of bipartisan bill later in the year. Right. And so the issue with the reconciliation approach was that you need 50 senators to bank that to get it through. And last year, you couldn't get, crucially, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia to back that. Is there a possibility then that he can be brought on board and his support can be secured or, as you say, this reconciliation package that only needs 50 votes? Well, I think that possibility remains. Uh, Senator Manchin has spoken on the record about his interest and willingness to continue discussing and pushing for some of the key provisions that were in reconciliation last year, including the climate um, and clean energy pieces. Um, he has publicly spoken out against certain pieces or questioned them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned how the EV tax credits under discussion didn't make a lot of sense to him. So I think there's probably some opportunity for, for a path forward there, but it's a bit uncertain what that means. Yeah, I remember the issue with EVs. His point was that why would you offer new tax credits for EVs when already demand is far outstripping supply? The issue is uh, manufacturers not being able to make EVs fast enough, not people not having enough demand for EVs. So I mean, that does make some sense, doesn't it, at that point? Well, I, I think if you ask anyone who's tried to buy a car in the last few months, uh, it's pretty hard. Uh, there's there's major supply chain shortages. So um, I think it's perhaps reflective of the broader supply chain issues. Yeah. Yeah. But so what might be left then? So in terms of what might make a real difference and have a positive impact on low carbon energy in the US, what might be included in this bill? So from our modeling, some of the most important pieces are the variety of different tax credits. Um, as well as the methane emissions reduction program. So the tax credits, there's lots of different tax credits in uh, reconciliation, in the former reconciliation bill for clean energy. That includes things like an expansion and extension of the production tax credit for clean electricity and the investment tax credit for clean electricity. There's a tax credit for helping existing nuclear power plants stay online. There's also tax credits for advanced manufacturing, so production and investment tax credits to make sure that as we deploy more clean energy, the manufacturing of those panels and, and wind turbines is happening in the U.S. And um, as we were just discussing, there's uh, tax credits for electric vehicles. Some of our modeling suggests those credits could yield really significant increases. Perhaps we could get to 50% or higher sales in 2030 of electric vehicles if um, those were passed in kind of their original form. And so all of these things um, are, are really important to helping create an incentive to deploy those technologies and to making sure that as that happens, the jobs to manufacture those pieces of equipment are in the US. And so there's a huge, not just emissions and energy improvement, but there's a, an employment opportunity here as well. Right. And we'll come on to the issue of uh, employment in the US in a moment. We've gone into the question of, of solar panels. But yeah, I mean, just thinking about the impact on the industry potentially from these tax credits. I know we've done some modeling at Wood Mackenzie that says that if the provisions in the Build Back Better Act for solar power had gone through, 
you get roughly twice as much investment in solar power over the coming decade as you would do if those provisions don't get passed. So yeah, I mean, it does look like it's a very powerful impact that they could have. And I don't know what your modeling has shown, but is it, does that sound about similar to the numbers you come up with? Yeah, it's it's a big impact, and um, as the kind of as the industry grows and scales over the next decade too, I think that that deployment rate would increase, which is key. If President Biden, we have any chance of hitting President Biden's clean electricity goal, we need to be scaling the clean electricity industry as quickly as possible here. So, as you've been saying, these negotiations have been going on behind closed doors. We haven't had a lot of insight really into what is being said by whom. We haven't seen positions being staked out in public very clearly. I think you'd say that was somewhat different from what happened last year when a lot of the negotiation was really right out there in public over the Build Back Better Act. What should we be watching for? When we're looking at this process from the outside, everyone who's interested in energy would love to know what kind of deal is going to come out of this. Are there any kind of indicators or staging points that we should be looking to to say, okay, this is the way this is going? Or is it just going to suddenly be kind of dropped on us with no warning one day, and they say, right, we have a deal, and here it is. Yeah, it is very different, it seems, from the last go-around in the fall. Um, it seems everything is a much more tight-lipped this go-around. Um, you know, as someone who spends their uh, daytime hours trying to model this stuff, I fear it's going to be the latter case where we might all of a sudden have legislative language released and a short timeline to try and uh, figure out what it all means and what the impact is. But I think it does seem there's a conscious effort to keep things a bit more under wraps this time around, given everything that happened in the fall. And one thing I wonder about is, is there going to be a sort of bipartisan cross-energy legislative package that comes out? When you think about the time tax credits for wind and solar were last extended in uh, 2015, that was part of a big package deal that included a lifting of the ban on crude oil exports. And is it possible we'd see something like that, where you'd give um, fossil fuel in- industries some help as well, maybe more support for LNG exports, um, part of the whole energy security agenda, part of the agenda for helping Europe get off Russian gas? And you could include some measures like that and combine them with also this additional help for low carbon energy. Do you think that's possible? It seems unlikely. Um, it just reading the the tea leaves a bit and seeing who's been in the negotiations or the the really conversations they're not negotiations that Senator Manchin and Senator Murkowski have been hosting. There doesn't seem to be that critical mass um, that would be needed to to do that. And some of the senators that have been joining have been outspoken uh, in the media following those discussions about their questions around some of the pieces, like the tax credits in particular. One of the conversations was centered on the tax credits in particular that were in Build Back Better last year. And it seemed there was not a lot of forward progress on getting 10 Republicans across the aisle to agree to those. So, you know, I, of course, I don't know, I'm not in those, those meetings. But um, if I had to guess right now, I, I would, I would put my chips in something happening on reconciliation more than a, a really comprehensive climate and clean energy bipartisan bill. So Melissa, What's your take on this? When you set this in the context of the Biden administration's climate strategy and what they're trying to achieve overall, how important is it that they get some kind of legislation passed? I mean, I think a couple of different things. One, if they don't manage to get something passed in the legislation, then they're really stuck with a very limited set of tools. So there's executive orders, which we can talk about in detail and the power or lack thereof in those um, and staying power of those things. And then also you know, different legal pathways to actually supporting deep decarbonization, which is a tricky one. And we've seen that play out a couple of times as well. So it's one of those, if we can reach consensus and actually pull across the aisle and do something bipartisan, even if it's a more limited scaled down version of what we were talking about last year, that could be tremendously important for moving forward some of the president's agenda and supporting things like the 2035, you know, ambition to have us running on all clean electricity. I mean, that is really ambitious, and we need all the help we can get if that's really the goal. Robbie was just only quite downbeat, though, about the prospect of making bipartisan progress in that way. Is that a problem? Do you think how important is it that you build bipartisan consensus on climate policy? Or is it okay for the Democrats? Obviously, in practical terms, it is going to be the Democrats that are going to be the ones pushing 
hardest to move climate policy forward, is it all right if they take the lead on it and don't really have any support from Republicans? So when we look historically at all of the big things we've done around energy and environment, they've had a degree of bipartisan support. That's the big acts that have had the long lasting impact. And so without bipartisan support, I mean, it's fair to say, no matter what you think is going to happen in the midterms, no matter how you look at the numbers today, it's not that either party has a clear or probably will have a clear path to victory without bipartisan support when it comes to moving anything forward. So not having any across the aisle conversations, compromises, discussions, that's just really tough and doesn't get a lot of movement. And so if you can garner that bipartisan support, if you can go across an aisle and have a few people who are supporting it from the other party, that will only help your case. And so what I think we're in the face of now is figuring out what can we move forward. And there's an important point in this that I think we're all aware of, but I just want to highlight that we often talk about two parties as if they are these two monoliths where within the party, everything looks the same. That is absolutely not the case. I remember when I moved from California to New Mexico to Texas to D.C., you know, as a when you think about moderates in each of those states, they look different. And when you think about Democrats and Republicans in each of those states, they look different. And so we've got to realize that there's a lot of different you know, colors and shades of things within each of the parties. And so as much as we can work on building consensus, the bigger probability of having success, something successful come out there is. So when it comes to all of these things around climate policy and energy and climate policy, think what we're in now. And Robbie, I'm curious if you disagree with this. I think we're on the same page in what we're observing, but I think we're trying to figure out what can we get across an aisle? Like what can we actually get across the line, which takes more than just the Democrats or just the Republicans now or after midterms working on their own? Yeah, I think that's right. And the infrastructure bill can serve as kind of an example of that, right? Like what could be pulled out if there were things that hadn't been in the infrastructure bill, they very likely may have ended up in reconciliation. So I think that's right. Like kind of what what can be pulled out and, and be done across the aisle versus what isn't going to make that cut and has to be done through other mechanisms like reconciliation. And I do think from the industry's point of view, always the thing that everybody wants is policy certainty. And that's true right across the entire spectrum of energy, fossil fuels, renewables, new types of energy, whatever it might be. The policy environment that changes radically every four years or every eight years when control of Congress changes or when the administration changes, that's not great for anybody. That's not a way for people to be able to make long-term plans, investments for the long-term. Energy is an incredibly long-term business. If you're building gas-fired power plant or an LNG export facility, that might have a life of 40 or 60 years. If you're building a nuclear power plant, that might have a life of 100 years. You do want to be able to know insofar as possible. Obviously, you can't always know everything that's going to happen in the future, but you would like at least government not to be introducing a massive extra element of uncertainty into the outlook that you face. And so the extent to which you can have a policy, as you say, which is agreed in a broad way across the political spectrum that everybody's going to back that won't chop and change radically every few years, that's really important. Yeah, so here's the question. If we boil it down, if we can't get something done in a bipartisan manner, what is the Biden administration left with? They're left with the courts and they're left with executive actions. And so we can go into the place and the roles that each of those have. But I think we're all aware of just what you were saying, Ed, which is that executive orders have power. It is temporary. It stays with that president and they can be, you know, chucked out with the next one um, completely or partially. And so it gives a degree of support for progress. And there's some places where it's really powerful when you talk about greening the federal government and efforts like that. But overall, they're not policy certainty that is really powerful for this long term. We're investing in major infrastructure projects type of scheme. But I'm curious, I want to I want to ask you, Robbie, like, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the courts right now? Because there's some interesting cases, but just broader thinking about the role of the Supreme Court, the state courts in all of this. Really important question. Um, And for I'm not an attorney, but I have been following what's happening at the court with regards to regulation of greenhouse gases somewhat closely. Um, and for folks that haven't been, you know, the quick summary is there's a there's a case that's been argued in front of the court about the EPA standards to regulate CO2 from power plants, but with much further reaching consequences, potentially. 
And so there's some concern that the court may strike down EPA's ability to regulate CO2, that it may even go beyond that and decide that agencies uh, can't interpret broad legislative language uh, with deference. And so all of that is feeding into this uncertainty about will EPA be able to continue to regulate CO2? And to your point, you know, if not, what does the toolkit look like? How narrow is the toolkit? What's the permanence of those standards or regulations if we have a different administration come in? And so we're at this moment of, um, I like what you said, this razor's edge, this moment of intense uncertainty around what the future looks like. And that is tough for developers and others to, to build business cases and deploy clean energy around. Which is a great cue to get into the second thing I want to talk about today, which is the federal government's investigation into possible dumping of solar panels. In March, the Department of Commerce launched an investigation into whether solar cells and modules, modules being the technical word for panels, um, from four countries, which were Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Cambodia, were being dumped in the US at unfairly low prices. There's a company called Oxin, which is a solar panel manufacturer based in California, that filed a complaint, and the Commerce Department said it was legally compelled to investigate to see if that complaint about dumping was justified. Now, the investigation is scheduled to deliver its initial conclusions by the end of August. And when it concludes, that could mean steep new duties being imposed on imports from those four countries. Those four countries are very important suppliers for solar developers in the US. And the Solar Energy Industry Association has said that if these new duties are enacted, they could reduce solar deployment by up to 16 gigawatts a year and put 70,000 jobs at risk in the US solar industry. But even before the inquiry is concluded, even before we've heard what they might say about those new duties, it's been causing huge uncertainty for anyone who buys solar panels because you don't know how much duty you're going to have to pay on them, particularly bad because the duties could be backdated to last November. So people that have bought panels already might find they now have to pay a big extra duty on the amount that they paid. And as a result, apparently nobody is buying solar panels in the market right now. And developers say that literally hundreds of projects are being delayed or cancelled. We've just been talking about how President Biden wants to accelerate deployment of renewable energy. The administration's got this target of getting to 100% zero carbon electricity by 2035. It's already a very, very ambitious goal. If you do something like this, which is putting a brake, slamming the brakes on investment in solar power, that really seems massively counterproductive. And what do you think of this, Melissa? I mean, when you look at what the administration is doing, it it seems kind of bizarre in some ways. How do we get to this point? Yes, I mean, first of all, when I look at this, what I see is the Biden administration having to uh, dance a very careful dance between labor unions and clean energy developers, climate goals, and broader things about how do we keep manufacturing jobs in this country and create new ones. Um, So it's it's, it's a complicated dance, especially knowing that it's 2022 and 2024 is right around the corner. And so I think you see that playing out. But if you look at the history when it comes to solar imports and tariffs, and I'm just going to go back to 2018, where we had former President Trump um, imposing that four-year tariff on solar imports. And this was done using a bunch of authorities in the, I believe it was the 1974 Trade Act. And at the time, I'm sure we can all remember that conversation. It was couched this way to protect solar manufacturing jobs in the U.S. and in theory, support more. Like that was a bunch of the conversation going on around it. And so, you know, they had this phase down tariff over the four years starting at 30 percent and then going down to 15 percent. And so you fast forward to this year. And we've seen a lot of stuff happening with tariffs, including the announcement in February from the Biden administration saying we're going to be easing these tariffs, but actually not ending them, not ending them at all. We're going to extend them by four more years. Um, And so we're going to pull back some tariffs specifically related to panel technologies. And this was the dance in the balance I was saying a second ago. We're going to pull back some tariffs related to uh, bifacial panels, which are there was something that wasn't really in a player in 2018, not a strong player at least. But now the tech has really taken off and a lot of major developers you know, are investing in it and buying those types of panels. And they've also said that they're going to essentially double the import allowance on the solar cells, so those components within the panels. And then they've created this pathway for duty-free supplies from Canada and Mexico. And that's separate from what you were just talking about 
ed with the different countries that are under investiga- investigation, the whole dumping conversation. But it's it's this idea of, I mean, the administration's playing a balancing act. You know, they want to support all the stuff Robbie was talking about. We want to build out renewables as quickly as possible, clean electricity as quickly as possible. If we want to have a chance at reaching these 2035 goals and mitigating the worst impacts of climate change by getting emissions down. But <laughs> we're thinking about jobs and we're thinking about labor unions and we're thinking about all the different people that are affected every single time one of these changes. And to your point, Ed, every time one of these changes, we end up in a bit of a pickle and not sure, okay, as an investor, what should I be doing? What's the best position to put my company in? Yeah, I mean, that does seem like a real paradox, doesn't it, Robbie? When you hear that part of the point of this is meant to be job creation, and it's trying to create jobs in the US solar manufacturing industry, but then you have the Industry Association, which obviously represents a lot of developers and installers, saying it's actually costing tens of thousands of jobs. How do you reconcile this? Does it mean that it's actually fundamentally misguided as a way of trying to create jobs in the US? Does it mean that really the US shouldn't be pushing so hard on job creation in manufacturing because ultimately, at the end of the day, the industry is based on these low-cost modules imported largely from Asia, particularly from those countries we've been talking about, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam. And if you cut off those uh, supplies of low-cost modules, then you do more damage than the damage you're trying to avoid from not having a domestic manufacturing industry. You know, one thing that's important to note, and uh, Secretary Raimondo, who testified last week in front of the Senate on uh, this and other issues, uh, mentioned this, but the process through which this complaint was filed is a like a quasi-judicial process. And I think the Biden administration, to your point, Melissa, is doing this dance of trying to respect the independence of of the investigation and not do what the former administration did, which is to intervene in these types of processes. And so that's part of what's happening if you listen to what Secretary Raimondo has just shared. So Yeah, sorry, you know, sorry, just just jump in there. So just to be clear about that. So this is Gina Raimondo, who's the, the Commerce Secretary. So she's in charge of the department that's carrying on this investigation. Right. right. And what in her point is what that the this is not really a bit of voluntary policy by the administration. It's just what they're compelled to do by law. Is that right? What does she say? By by yeah, by statute, if this type of complaint is filed, there's a formal review process that's kind of independent from the administration uh, and from the agency or from the department itself. And it needs to go through that review process. Now that has a time limit of 150 days. And it's kind of amazing. We're only, I think, six weeks in here. um, And we're, we're seeing some of these impacts already. So we should have a decision at the latest by the end of August, hopefully before then. And that's some of what um, folks like Senator Schatz from Hawaii was pressing um, the secretary to kind of commit to a faster timeline, given all this uncertainty. But the kind of major point that's been made by the administration and by the Department of Commerce is, look, we have this formal process. It was established, you know, by Congress to help avoid situations where the executive branch steps in and plays favorites and picks winners and losers. And so we want to respect that process. But obviously, that's also at tension with, you know, scaling the solar industry and making sure that we don't lose all these um, jobs and installer jobs. And to your point, Ed, that we that we have a way to scale manufacturing. I know I mean, personally, you don't think that's through tariffs. I think things like the tax credits and reconciliation are a good example. And, and I know we were talking about how some of your modeling has shown the impact that can have. But so this it, it is a it is a really tricky dance that the administration is is trying to navigate. I mean, I think Robbie's making a lot of good points when it comes to, you know, how do you think about reaching these near-term goals we have and creating industries? And what is the role of the government in that? And what are the different tools they have? Yeah, I'm trying to reconcile in my own mind what I think about this, because I can see that creating a domestic supply chain for solar equipment can be a good thing to do. And I can see that at the moment, China's absolutely dominant in global markets. It's, I think, something like two-thirds of all solar panel manufacturing in the world comes out of China. And so I don't think that's a very healthy position. On the other hand, international trade exists for a reason. Comparative advantage is a real thing. In other words, countries are better at doing some things than they are at others. 
And I'm not sure it really is the case that the United States has a comparative advantage in manufacturing solar panels. And if you can buy those panels from a diverse range of countries, so you're not just reliant on China, but you've got Malaysia and Thailand, maybe Japan and Korea and Mexico and a few other places as suppliers, that feels like not a huge risk in terms of energy security. And if there are these lower cost resources available, lower cost resources in the form of lower cost solar panels, it's foolish not to take advantage of that and to import them and to use that to develop your own industry as quickly as you can. Melissa, what do you think? I mean, I think you're discussing a conversation that's playing out on a lot of different levels, right? So there's many reasons why, when we think about the geopolitics and the security of our entire energy supply chains, why we have concerns with, you know, supply chains being concentrated in certain countries, but we have less concerns than others. Um, what is clear is that moving forward, we want to use a lot of this technology. What is also clear is that countries, not the United States, have, you know, really got a head start on a lot of it because they went whole hog towards, you know, building out their industries. And in some cases, you know, they have a government structure that allowed them to say, we're doing this, let's go, um, that we don't have here in the U.S. for a whole variety of reasons. And so given where we are today, because that's the point, you know, we can look at history about how we got here, but it's saying moving forward, which pieces of a very complex supply chain are we okay with having anywhere in the world? Are we okay with having in a subset of countries or do we feel like we need to be creating in this country? And within that, it's not just a security conversation. It's not just a geopolitics conversation. It's also a jobs and, you know, employment conversation. And so all of those things and what you were just outlining, I mean, those are all pieces of this. And it's about a decision as to the trade-offs we're willing to accept and the places that we as a country are going to choose to invest in. And so when we think about manufacturing jobs, those can take a lot of forms just within the solar supply chain. Um, you could be talking about mining the raw materials. You could talk about turning you know, that into the materials you need, putting it into the cells, putting it into the panels. Um, which of those things do we feel are critical for us to have in this country or we're OK with having some of it in other countries? And so we've got to make those choices. And in absence of making those choices, we actually are making a choice. We're saying it's not the top priority for us to invest in, in this country. And so as we go into an increasingly renewable energy future, I think these things are going to become more immediate and we're going to be more concerned with them than we were in the past. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think that's absolutely right. And that is something which I think is still underappreciated more broadly in the whole debate, which is that you can't be one size fits all about this. You can't just have a blanket thing about we need our own manufacturing or we have to allow imports or whatever it might be. You have to look at it on a case by case basis across different products, different sectors, different countries, different parts of the world and say, maybe some of these things, these are strategic, actually, we do need to do this ourselves. Because if we lost this supply, it would be really critical for us. It's a national security issue or because there's some really important advanced technology here and we want to develop that technology or because there's a whole load of jobs in this industry and we really want those jobs to be uh, at home rather than other countries. But you have to make those decisions case by case rather than in broad generalities. Well, and I do see the validity and arguments about how you have to think longer term because you can't make an industry overnight. I mean, we saw pivots happen with like COVID and masks. You could retool a factory, but that factory was largely there. You know, if you wanted to scale up really, really fast, there was some kind of equipment that could be retooled and reused. And so I'm, I'm having flashbacks in this conversation right now, honestly, all about it's like 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, we were talking about, you know, critical grid components for our transmission grid and the fact that we had like two of this piece of equipment or one of this piece of equipment or five of this piece of equipment in the whole country. And what happens if part of the grid goes down and we need that? And so it's about it's about that balance between how much money we're willing to invest, how much you know restrictions we're willing to put on something to keep a domestic industry versus the potential risks if something goes wrong. And that's that's hard. That's not an easy conversation. It is in some cases it's black and white, you know, but in a lot it's not. It's a lot of gray and we have to make these decisions. So I want to move on now, but I will just say that like the negotiations, discussions over tax credits that are going on in Congress, this issue with the inquiry into alleged dumping, that's an evolving situation and you should watch this space. Keep tuning in. We will be bringing you all the latest on this very important story as it evolves over the coming months. So last thing then I want to talk about today is 
hydrogen. Uh, I think it's fair to say that interest in hydrogen has been pretty cyclical. It's been going on for a very long time. Certainly, um, President George W. Bush, you may remember, launched a hydrogen fuel initiative back in 2003. And before that, I was looking this up the other day. Pretty amazing. There was a hydrogen fueled Cadillac that was driven in President Jimmy Carter's inaugural parade all the way back in 1977. So it's kind of the idea that hydrogen has an important role to play in the energy system is not new by any means, but it does seem like we're in that period of a real upswing of interest in hydrogen. It is certainly one of the few solutions we've got for delivering reliable, low carbon energy, where we know that it works. It doesn't really require any kind of huge breakthroughs in technology. The use of hydrogen to store energy is pretty well established. It's becoming very important in Europe as part of their strategy for reducing reliance on Russian gas. In the US, it's one of those solutions that does actually command that kind of bipartisan support across the parties that we've been talking about as being really important in terms of providing sort of lasting, stable policy frameworks. But there is a but. There has to be a but. And there are still some very important reservations about hydrogen and some very important questions that need to be answered. In particular, I think there are some real issues about the demand for hydrogen and where it gets used. And Robbie, this is something you're uh, think tank energy innovation has been really interesting on i think recently you um published this paper recently which was looking at how viable it is to blend hydrogen in with natural gas this is one of the ideas that's been popular for kind of creating demand for hydrogen as you blend it into natural gas where natural gas is used today for heating and for power generation and this report basically calling that into question and saying that's not really a great option in terms of use of hydrogen. Just give us the headline from that report then. What is the, the point there? Why were you in this way casting doubt on the usefulness of blending hydrogen into the gas supply? Yeah, thanks, Ed. There's been a two, three dozen utility proposals around the country in the last year or so looking at, you know, proposing blending hydrogen into the gas system, getting rate recovery for investments required for that. Um, and I think you know, the, the focus of this report is really digging into some of the details on that. And what does it mean? How much can we actually blend? What does it mean for emissions? How usable is that hydrogen? And the, the key takeaway is that given the, at least the U.S. natural gas transmission and distribution system, we can't really blend more than 5 to 20% tops into the system without risking um, embrittlement of, of the pipes um, and issues around leaking. You know, uh, Hydrogen is a much smaller molecule than methane, and it leaks much more readily. And we already know um, that natural gas has a real leakage problem um, in the U.S. natural gas and transmission and distribution system. So, um, you know, at most, we're looking at 20% without major upgrades to the system. And another really important point is that hydrogen is not as energy dense as methane. So by volume, it has about a third as much energy as natural gas. And so that means if you want to substitute 20% of the volume of natural gas, you're really only replacing about 6 to 7% of the energy content. So that means that given today's uh, natural gas infrastructure, you know, even getting to 20%, 100% carbon-free uh, methane, you know, blue, 100% capture blue or, or green hydrogen with um, clean energy and electrolysis, we'd only be cutting building emissions by 6 to 7% or emissions of, of equipment that use natural gas by 6 to 7%. And another you know, important thing there is that a lot of appliances haven't been tested to, be, to use the hydrogen. We just simply don't know the feasibility for a lot of equipment in buildings as to whether or not it can use hydrogen. So uh, this report kind of takes a, a magnifying glass of some of these proposals and some of the physical and chemical limitations of blending hydrogen into the system with, with the idea that being that we really should take a critical eye to some of these proposals before we you know, move full steam ahead uh, in, in approving blending hydrogen into the natural gas system. So Melissa, what do you think of this? Do you see a role for blending hydrogen into the natural gas system or are you also skeptical? I mean, I think there is a very possible role and we're seeing different utilities proving that out, not just here in the US, um, but also in the UK, I'm thinking in particular 
about blending. And one thing I, important thing I just add to what Robbie said is that we can blend up to, you know, 20% or so into existing pipelines in certain cases. So cast iron pipes, mm-mm. Like you're not going to put hydrogen in there. You're going to have embrittlement issues right away. So in, in swaths of the Northeast, that's going to be an issue. And, and sorry, yeah, sorry, just to jump in on in the word embrittlement, that means what? That, that it makes the metal brittle? Yeah. I mean, is, is it, it means what it sounds like, does it? What, what is the effect there? So I could go into one of my textbooks and find the exact definition of it. But when I think of embrittlement, you actually are thinking about making that material brittle, which makes it prone to crack and fall apart. So it, it just... It isn't in good shape anymore. So you're essentially degrading the pipeline. I mean, that's what you're doing. And so when you look at cast iron pipes, you're not blending hydrogen in them. With steel pipes, you can think about putting in coatings. You can put in a liner to actually make them be able to take hydrogen. Plastic pipes actually seem to be in a very good position for these blending ratios. So some of the newer networks and upgraded networks, those can handle a bunch of hydrogen. Um, And I think that there's a real potential in the near term to reduce emissions if we look at all the colors of the rainbow of hydrogen, which we're talking about actually this week on the big switch. I was having a great chat with my former colleague, Julio Friedman, um, and you know all the colors of the hydrogen rainbow. So when we look at how we produce hydrogen today, we can blend it in, but it's probably not great for emissions. So I'm, I'm skeptical of that. But when I look at blue hydrogen, so that's when you take fossil fuels and put your carbon capture in there, or green where we can make electrolysis work, so green hydrogen, that's really interesting. And we could take down some near-term emissions. In particular, I'm thinking about like heavy industry. Um, when it comes to the housing side of things, I'm following the work of Jack Brower out in California and some other academics about what we can do to actually retrofit existing boilers to take higher blend ratios of hydrogen, which again, if we can move away from the gray, very carbon intensive unmitigated fossil fuel created hydrogen to a cleaner blue-green, and we can talk about the turquoise and the bio and the pinks and all the things, but all the other green, clean versions of hydrogen. It's really interesting what's coming out of the research as to what we could do to actually retrofit and not just have to replace a bunch of equipment. I think that at the end of the day, when we look at hydrogen, I'm not totally sold on this hydrogen future. I'm not going like hydrogen for everything, but I see hydrogen and I do agree with the phrase that hydrogen is the Swiss army knife that can help us to decarbonize some really sticky stuff. And then once we start using it for that really sticky stuff, that really difficult to abate, that heavy industry that we need to get to zero, we start seeing other pathways open up. If we're already creating it, we're already investing in the pipelines, we're already investing in the infrastructure, other places in the economy can take it. And I think it's a really interesting um, proposition. And I'll flag you know, the different types of hydrogen hubs activities that are now underway impartial with uh, this indicated support from the Department of Energy saying, are we going to create hubs to actually say in different parts of the country, it makes sense to have more or less hydrogen because it's not a one size fits all. It doesn't make sense everywhere. But are we going to build a hydrogen in those spaces? So I'm going to try to summarize myself real quick, Ed, which is to say I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic and I'm not a hydrogen for everything and I'm not a hydrogen for nothing. I mean, we're already using it today. So I'd like that hydrogen to be zero carbon. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. But actually, and that last point you raised, I just think is a really important one. I do think that potential of hydrogen for lots of uses is really interesting. To your Swiss Army knife analogy, I do think, though, that some of those blades in that knife are pretty blunt. And oh, totally. what Robbie's been talking about, that this blending into the gas supply that goes into people's homes that will run your boiler your hot water and you'll cook on it i just don't really see that as being a significant thing long term we have other solutions right we can for heat in the home we've got heat pumps we can cook on electric induction stoves there are other things you can do that mean you don't need to put hydrogen into people's homes with all the various issues we've been talking about in terms of safety and so on that that raises even maybe if you don't electrify you could um, have other types of gas that go down the pipes into your home that are not hydrogen. You could have renewable natural gas made from landfills and agricultural waste. You could have synthetic natural gas made using green hydrogen, possibly put that together and, and use that for something. So I, I personally think points Robbie's been making about why put um, hydrogen into people's homes, I think those are absolutely right. I'm just going to push on this real quick, which is that I think that often when we talk about hydrogen, that could be the Swiss Army knife. And we all know Swiss Army knives are very, if you get them one tool, you want it. Okay. <laughs> but if you have the option to have more tools, of course you want more tools in that toolbox. And we want a lot of tools in that toolbox when it comes to decarbonization. 
But with hydrogen, we often focus in on, I think, often the use cases that probably make the least sense, which is residential applications and even light duty vehicle applications. I've seen that popping up again. And I'm like, look, that's we have other solutions to your point. It's crazy. When you think yeah. about yeah. electrification of light duty cars, like the technologies there. Let's run with that. That doesn't mean no hydrogen, but it's this idea of, you know, so, so many of these conversations about like bioenergy being the solution to everything. If we calculate the amount of bioenergy on this planet and ignore food, we can't use it for every single thing. Um, when we talk about hydrogen, it doesn't make sense in every single place. In solar, wind, every single thing has a place where it makes sense and a place where it doesn't. And so with hydrogen, I, I don't, I just see that conversation going towards some of the most useless applications for it, as opposed to the places where we need extremely high quality heat. And it might make a heck of a lot of sense to have hydrogen in that equation. I agree with that. I think there are definitely applications for hydrogen that make a lot of sense. We already have about 60 million metric tons of emissions from from gray hydrogen consumption in the US. 90% of that is in refineries and ammonia. Great. Let's start there. If we can use it as a feedstock for iron and steel, terrific. Let's use it where, to your point, it's a Swiss Army knife to to address some of the hardest to decarbonize totally. sectors. I think the 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 utility a lot of the utility proposals that we're seeing are not geared towards that. They're they're geared towards this. Let's inject it into the gas supply and and um and use it for buildings. And so I think stepping back, you know, let's use hydrogen where it's going to be most valuable and and where we don't have a lot of other solutions like heat pumps that are you know way more efficient and um, and to, to really focus on development in those areas. Well, and a couple different things around this. Like, I agree with you. We should start using it where it makes the most sense. Um, one thing that I'm still getting my brain around is around hydrogen as a storage vehicle. Like, I am still thinking about that. I mean, hydrogen, maybe it's hydrogen, maybe it's ammonia, you know, hydrogen as long-term storage, and that's way beyond 100 hours, months-long storage from year to year so you can bridge dry years. Like, when I look at the numbers and the economics on it, even if, you know, per unit of hydrogen, it's expensive for a whole total systems cost, it can really bring down our costs. And this goes back to a paper that I wrote about a year and a half ago with um, Aaron Blanton and Kristen Smith at the, at the Center on Global Energy Policy. It's the only paper I've ever written about pipelines. And the idea was in all of our scenarios where we are looking at a decarbonized future and we keep costs low, reliability high, we use some form of gas, to your point, Ed, it's a lot of different gases potentially, but hydrogen could have a role in that in keeping total system down, total system costs down. And I just, hydrogen as a storage vehicle, that's, that, that could solve a lot of challenges we're looking at with the integration of much higher penetrations of variable renewables, et cetera. So... I don't know. The jury's still out. I will say I've seen the hydrogen cycle come around and all the hype and the bust several times at this point <laughs> in my career. I feel like it's a little more reality than hype. I mean, when I was at the International Energy Agency in like 2012, 13, it definitely didn't feel there yet. This does feel different. Like this conversation does feel different today. And I think that parts of that comes from the world being much more aligned on moving to net zero. That conversation has evolved in a decade. But also the technologies have improved and not just the technologies for electrolysis and hydrogen, but all the renewables and zero carbon resources that can feed into them. Uh, I was just going to say, I tell me how wrong I am, Ravi. Say I'm totally wrong. No, no, I, like, not I at all. I, I, um, I think it, it very well may be useful for that last 10 to 15 percent. I'm I, I don't know. It could be, maybe direct air capture costs will be low enough by then. Maybe we slap a CCS unit on a gas peaker and deal with the fact that it only runs a few hours a year. Um, I think, you know, I think you put it well earlier, like we want as many tools as possible to be able to finish this out when we get there. So I think putting the research in to see how that works makes a lot of sense. I don't know what the don't know what the technology of the day is going to be and what's going to prevail. So we do just about have to leave it there. I just want to make one point going back to something you were saying, probably just to wrap up this discussion, which is when you were talking about all the hydrogen that we use already for fertilizers and uh, the refining industry, petrochemicals. And when you were making that point, if you're on video, you could have seen me and Melissa nodding very, very vigorously and putting two thumbs in the air. We absolutely agree with that. And when you think about the, uh, the future for hydrogen, what the immediate future is, we use a whole lot of hydrogen already. Let's make the hydrogen that we use today low carbon, 
zero carbon if we can. That's a great place to start. Then we can start thinking about all these other potential uses, as you say, potentially for power generation, long-term energy storage, all those other things definitely have got an interesting long-term future. But right now there's a massive market for hydrogen already. Let's decarbonize that. So as I say, we are going to have to just about uh, leave it here. However, we do have to have our free electrons that we brought in to uh, conclude with. Um, Robbie, what's yours? I thought I would talk about uh, a, a report we just released last week that takes a kind of novel look at the cost of buying an electric vehicle and to own it. Um, and so I'm sure um, folks who follow this, you know, we've seen a lot of research that talks about the total cost of ownership being lower for electric vehicles or the operating costs. Certainly, that's true with gas prices where they are now. Um, but not that many people actually frame this from the perspective of the average consumer, which is what are your bills going to be at the end of the month if you choose an electric vehicle instead of a gasoline car? Um, and so we we wanted to take a look at that. And as it turns out, 85% of people who go out and buy a new car, they finance it. They don't walk in and put down all the money for the car. And so those differences in upfront costs, you know, whether it's five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars, those are spread out over a few years. And as it turns out, when you add up the financing costs, the cost to fuel your car with electricity or gasoline. In a lot of states, more than half of the six different comparisons we looked at, it's cheaper the day you drive the car off the lot to buy an electric vehicle, even if it's ten dollars to $15,000 more uh, sticker price. Um, and that's because you can offset those higher financing costs through the lower fuel savings and lower maintenance savings. In two models uh, that, we've, that we looked at, the Ford F-150, uh, and the Hyundai Kona, it was cheaper in every single state that we looked at, which was really incredible. Now, this all depends on the federal tax credits. So let's hope we get those passed. Ford and Toyota and Nissan are going to hit those caps this year, and GM and Tesla already have. So that's an important consideration. Um, but that was a really interesting finding. And I'll tell you the most interesting finding, if you want to own an EV in America, move to New Jersey. That is really fascinating. And they go, uh, Melissa, it's news you can use for you, right? If you're thinking about buying your Cybertruck, this sounds like very useful information. Before we go there, Robbie, could you, is it his New Jersey fuels really expensive? Tell, tell me about this New Jersey thing. Taxes low. Like, I, I want to know the dynamic there. New Jersey's not far from New York. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's a $5,000 uh, rebate for buying a car. Mm -hmm. Uh, an EV. Now, that, of course, requires that the program be funded adequately, which it hasn't been. Okay. It's run out quickly in the last few years. But that is on the table. Um, there's also no sales tax on electric vehicles in New Jersey. Um, and so, yeah, when you start layering all those things and you look at the gas prices, high gas prices and, and low electricity rates, um, it, was, it was the best state that we looked at to own an electric vehicle. So go New Jersey. New Jersey. Well done. I remember New Jersey being the surprise solar leader not that many years ago in terms of installs, and now they're leading on uh, electric vehicles. That's interesting on costs. Well, there you are. Um, so yeah, Ed, Robbie, y'all know the, the hunt for the electric vehicle for our future um, continues, except I think we, we have now put money down on one, but I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Did Tesla win the day? Did Ford? Did Rivian? Where did we go? I'll let you know when it's delivered because that's the thing I'm waiting for. After having um, the website crash the other day and, you know, not letting us put money down on anything for a little while uh, if we wanted to. Um, yeah, I'll let you know when when I can drive it and when it really exists here. Better yet, I'll let you know the minute it can pull um pull our trailer because that's really what it's about that's what that we're going is for. very exciting then i just hope this podcast <laughs> is still going and we're all still going. 20, 2035 or so when is this like, you're expecting this to get to oh live. good night i hope not <laughs> but it gives us all something to look forward to anyway it does it does um so there you go and i'll say uh for my free electron this week i have been reading through a bunch of different papers by one of my colleagues diana hernandez professor diana hernandez in the school of public health um here at columbia university uh she and professor michael gerard over in the law school and i have been working on a collaboration along with a couple of researchers on our team alexandria um and aditi and it's been a great partnership to really dive into energy and security and like what options we have to reducing energy burden. Um, when we think about what's going on right now, I think this is a really timely topic. 
understanding the drivers of what causes energy burden and then what we can do about it. Because right now, as, as gas prices and energy prices go up, there's a real near-term need for a lot of folks where they're saying, I need to get to work. You know, one in three Americans are currently energy insecure. That's a massive number. And more are being pushed into that number right now. And so I've been reading a lot of Diana's pieces on the drivers of it, what policy tools do we have, and then the differences between what is actually coming from low income and what is coming from historical you know, policies, disadvantaged communities, uh, predominantly black and brown communities. And the numbers are stark. And I'm just so appreciative that we have at least some data that show us what's happening that can give us an indication of what we can do about it to actually reduce these numbers and close these gaps. So that's been a lot of my week. Yeah, that does sound fascinating. As you say, it's such an important topic. So we can read that. Is that on your website or where would we find that? So we're about to release a couple pieces um, that summarize a ton of the research. But the pieces I were reading are papers that have come out from Professor Diane Hernandez in the School of Public Health at Columbia University. And then as soon as the different fact sheets and stuff that we're putting together are ready, I'll definitely flag it with the crew here. Because I think that what we're trying to do is just really summarize what the numbers tell us, you know, break it down. Uh, not in a 50-page report, in like a page or two. Like, what do we know and what can we do about it? Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds really interesting. So my free electron, very quickly, just want to talk about a podcast I've been listening to. Uh, other podcasts other than The Energy Gang are also available, apparently. And um, a podcast called The Good Fight, uh, presented by somebody called Yesha Munk, had a really interesting discussion with a journalist called uh, David Wallace-Wells. I don't know if you uh, have come across him quite a sort of celebrity in the world of climate journalism, wrote a very uh, influential article back in 2017 called The Uninhabitable Earth, which was then turned into a pretty successful book. Um, my, I have my copy again. If you can see me on video, I'm waving it around here, described as an epoch-defining book by The Guardian. We have Margaret Atwood here describing it as a must-read. You get a tenor of it. I mean, it's essentially, it's a very, I mean, well, I guess you can guess the theme of it from the title, The Uninhabitable Earth, it's a kind of a book about climate catastrophe. The very first words of the book I'm just going to read to you now are, it is worse, much worse than you think. And the article said at the time, and I think the book as well, were very much kind of criticized by climate scientists who said uh, what he is doing here is taking possible kind of extreme edge cases and saying this is what's going to happen, this is going to be the future of the world. And that by this sort of catastrophizing, uh, you hear people sometimes called doomists and so on, talking about these very, very appalling potential outcomes from climate change. You're giving people the idea that that's the course we're headed on and that's where we're definitely going to end up or even that's where we're most likely to end up when that is absolutely not what the science says. On this podcast, what he's basically doing is kind of rowing back from some of those kind of apocalyptic ideas and he's saying we're not talking about climate change ending life on earth we're not talking about climate change ending human civilization it is serious it is a real problem it is going to make life much more difficult in many parts of the world it is going to create terrible hardship it is going to make uh, disasters more likely in many parts of the world and so on it is a huge problem that needs to be addressed but we shouldn't get the idea that we're all kind of inevitably on this track towards the end of the world. And I just think that's a really interesting issue in kind of messaging and the whole discussion around climate change is how do you get that kind of tone right to say, no, climate change is not going to kill us all, but yes, it is a really serious problem that needs to be addressed. And I thought that was interesting that he's thinking about ways to try and put that message perhaps in a more accurate and realistic way that's more faithful to the science without giving people the idea that, oh, it's nothing to worry about and it's something that's kind of basically fixed. And one of the things he says is, you know, the reasons, one of the reasons that um, these apocalyptic outcomes are less likely is because we've had climate policy that has actually been pretty effective, that has definitely changed the trajectory of the global energy system, that has brought down the cost of renewable energy very, very dramatically, has meant that it's realistic to think about global uh, greenhouse gas emissions peaking and then starting to fall. So we have actually achieved a lot in the fight against climate change, but that doesn't mean we've done everything. 
And I thought, as I say, just very interesting question about how you get that messaging right, strike that right balance. I got to follow up on that because I love it. It's a really important thing to think about. And I had this moment um, when we were recording The Big Switch and we were doing interviews with some experts and it was with uh, Dr. Chris Bataille. It became this episode, Death of a Toaster. We were talking about industrial decarbonization. We broke down a toaster. But I was talking to Chris and he made this comment about how decarbonizing industry is a 30 to 40 year task and you can break it up in decades. And that actually represents a career for someone. And it was this moment when I was like, if somebody dedicated themselves to it now, they could build their career about around this. And at the end of their career, say, look, the transformation that I helped have happen. And I found it just like, I got little chills. I found it really inspiring because I hadn't thought of it that way until he broke it down that way because I focus on power, which is much more near term. And he was breaking down the stickiest part of our economy in a way that I found very actually optimistic. He wasn't saying it was easy but he was showing the pathway for doing that in the next four decades, which is a career. So I just, great free electron, man. Like, that's Yeah, great. that is that is fantastic. And I love that. I think that's a great image, as you say, that thought about dedicate, dedicating your career to something and being able to come up with that real achievement, hopefully during the course of the decades of your working life. Yeah, it's a very inspiring thought. Love that. And hopefully some of our listeners will be so inspired. A great note to end on then, but we do have to end it here. Unfortunately, uh, that's all for the Energy Gang for this week. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thanks, Ed, and it was great joining you and Robbie again. It's good to have this group back together for a good discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much, Robbie, for joining us. Thanks, Ed, and yeah, uh, likewise, really fun uh, to be back chatting with you both today. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We've had a few great ideas come in, and we're certainly planning to pick up on those in future shows. We're on Twitter still at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.